the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I am Robert Steinbuck, filling in for Dave. Uh, Dave is out um, getting a medical procedure today. We all wish him very well. Hopefully, I'll be able to uh, competently fill in for him. Folks, good morning. It's early. The sun is coming up. It is, let me take a look, 6.07 in the morning. We've got a lot to talk about, as we always do. Uh, We are going to be welcoming uh, later in the show, of course, our great Congressman French Hill. Uh, Our producer, Heidi, is uh, on the line. She is with us. I am remote. Heidi, say hello to everybody, please. Hey. There you go. Uh, I've asked Heidi to uh, participate uh, today, as she often does. She has useful things to say, and she will also, uh, you'll see some behind-the-scenes work, in fact, because while she will text me, she may also get on the line to remind me that we need to take a break or something like that. It's sometimes, hopefully, interesting to see the mechanics of uh, live radio. In any event, let's get straight to it. I want to talk about a number of issues today. We never have enough time. Uh, One thing that the president has spoken about recently, don't worry, folks, by the way, We'll get to talking about the VP pick uh, shortly. But there's more on the plate today than just the simple politics of who uh, the handlers for Joe uh, uh, um, Biden chose for the VP. I'm not sure Joe Biden remembers who was chosen. Put that aside for a moment. As you all know, we're in the middle of this pandemic. It has well, the, the resulting shutdown has created dramatic negative economic effects, temporary as they may be, significant to many, and permanent in some regards because some businesses are not going to survive. So one of the things that the president has suggested he will do, uh, particularly because the Democrats don't want to make another deal at the moment, is he wants to cut uh, payroll taxes. So let me explain first what that is and then what the president has said he wants to do, how not unusual this is. I realize the odd locution there uh, and why the Democrats are clearly just playing politics with this issue because they've said exactly the opposite of what they're saying today. If you look, if you are an ordinary employee, you work for somebody else, 
I work for somebody else, for example. I work for the state. I work for the university, as you all know. I'm a law professor at the Bowen School of Law. Let me say, as Dave often does, that my views are mine alone and don't necessarily represent anybody at the Bowen School of Law or the University of Arkansas in general or anybody in state government, for that matter. They might, but they don't necessarily so. So when you look at that paycheck, my paycheck, uh, if you're in a similar position, your paycheck, you see that certain taxes are withheld. And then, of course, they take out money because typically you pay for part of your health insurance or maybe you've elected to buy some extra insurance at your choice. And you can do that through your paycheck as opposed to buying it privately. Great. Whatever. It's still a private purchase, but it's not a separate transaction. It just makes it easier for you. Two types of taxes that you see. And within those two, there's a breakdown. There's income taxes, state and federal. So that means you make a certain amount of money and the government, both state and federal, takes a piece of it. I've long since argued, amongst many others, that they take too much. But Robert, Robert, you see, we need to have more money because we want all these services. Oh, I get it, folks. I get it. I would love... For the government to come mow my lawn, uh, to come uh, clean my car, etc. To be clear, I'm being somewhat sarcastic. Uh, but what I mean by that is, sure, I'll take uh, services, but I recognize that I have to pay for them. And if the government does it, it's going to cost me more money, not less than when I go out and try to privately contract for the, those items. So uh, I recognize that we all have a wish list of what government can do for us. Uh, But there's a limit to that, and we will sometimes go without government assistance in some matter, and the government oftentimes, to be clear, the government leaves it up to us to uh, spend our money how we see fit. So, no, I don't think we should be paying more in income taxes. I think, in fact, as a general matter, we should be paying less. So... That goes for the state. It goes for the federal government. Of course, the federal government spends money on national defense, amongst many other things. The state spends money on uh, building highways, although so does do the feds, right? They do the, the, uh, the interstate highways. So that's where your money goes. There's another tax, which is not small, folks, not small at all, on your paycheck. It's called FICA. It's your social security payment and Medicare payment, meaning it's the money that's supposed to be dedicated for when you get social security and Medicare. Now, in reality, it's not dedicated for that, but whatever you could imagine that instead of just having a federal income tax on your statement, there was a a breakdown. It said, here's the tax for national defense. Here's the tax for interstate highways. You see that, by the way, for those of you that own property, I own, uh, I, uh, oh yeah, I own a house. I was going to say that the bank owns part of it, but you, you take the meaning. Uh, and when you look at the property tax, you have a total amount, but then it says this much for schools, this much for the fire department. Now you can't pick and choose amongst them. You don't get to say, well, I don't want to pay for that one, but it gives you the breakdown. So we, as a society, separated the two taxes, the income tax that goes for everything else, so to speak, that the government, state and federal uh, buys, spends money on, and 
the tax on our income that we don't call income tax that goes for Social Security and Medicare. Those are separated out on our paycheck. And they're handled a little differently. The percentages are different. different. And interestingly, unlike income tax, the FICA tax is capped, meaning you start paying from dollar one, but after you make a little over 100000 I believe, you stop paying. Of course, income tax works the other way around. You don't pay for the initial amount of money you make, but then as you get higher and higher in income, you pay more and more in income taxes. So the FICA tax is what is known as regressive, meaning it impacts people with lower income more than it impacts people with higher income. Enough, Rob, you're saying. I get it. It's early in the morning, and you're giving us an economics lesson. Okay, so I am done with the um, economics lesson. Now let's move on to what the president has done. He said during this difficult economic times, we need to put more money in the hands of hardworking Americans. One way to do that is to stop withdrawing so much money from their income in taxes. Which tax? This time he said, let's stop withdrawing so much of the FICA tax. So if you look at your paycheck, more money shows up. Now, we'll talk about this in a moment, but keep in mind, it's just a temporary delay in the payment of those taxes. For now, he did say he would like to make that permanent. So in other words, as you know, you can fill out paperwork to tell the government, uh, I have a lot of dependents, I have few dependents, and that determines how much they withhold in your taxes. You withhold a lot now, then you get money back at the end of the year. You withhold a little now, then you pay money at the end of the year. So, so far, that's all the president's doing. But let's not get into that detail at the moment. Let's talk about whether or not this is something that the Democrats would support. Well, why wouldn't they support it? The Democrats have had argued when President Bush the second cut income taxes that that was unfair. They said you're cutting income taxes, but you're not cutting FICA taxes. As I mentioned a moment ago, when you cut income taxes, that actually impacts those who make a little bit more money in a greater way because those who only pay FICA taxes are lower income. They pay no income taxes or very little, but they're still paying the FICA taxes. So they get no rebate if you cut income taxes. But if you were to cut FICA taxes, they would. So you, you would be supporting more the working class if you cut FICA taxes. They, the Democrats, let me be clear, the Democrats argued at that point that we should be cutting FICA taxes. And I'm going to let you all in a little secret. It's not really a secret, of course. I agreed with the Democrats. I said, if you're going to cut taxes, and I want to cut taxes, cut taxes that affect everyone. So yes, cut income taxes, but also cut FICA taxes. So now the Democrats argue the complete opposite. You can't cut FICA taxes because you're undermining the ability of the federal government to pay out Social Security and Medicare. Wait, now wait a second. 
Why are you undermining it? Because if you cut the taxes, say the Democrats, there'll be less money in the government till to spend on these items. That's a true statement. That's a fair statement. But A, it's not what they argued last time. And B, it suggests somehow that the money that goes into Social Security winds up in a bank account for you, waiting there later. For those of that who remember, this was the Al Gore lockbox claim, what he wanted to do, not what was being done. It was all nonsense, of course. So that money spent once it comes in. And it, it has been spent on items outside of Social Security as well. And that's why I gave you that little breakdown before in terms of uh, uh, what happens if your tax bill said uh, national defense, uh, building of roads. Doesn't matter. Doesn't mean the money's actually going for those items. Doesn't mean they can't transfer the money from one item to another item. And it doesn't change your tax burden. So here's an idea by the president to reduce the tax burden on the working class and the Democrats object to it, even though they supported it at the time President Bush was talking about cutting just income taxes and did so, by the way. Heidi, do we need to take a break yet? Sure, let's do it. Let's do it then. Folks, we'll be back in a few minutes. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this morning. Dave, unfortunately, is out getting a procedure. We wish him the very best and look forward to his speedy return. I'll be joining you folks, incidentally, again this Friday. Uh, Dave has another uh, guest host tomorrow, giving me a little bit of a break, thank goodness. It's a tough job. I don't know how Dave does it every day. In any event, I want to finish up this topic and move on to another topic, but I just want to make something clear. So President Trump says he wants to cut what's called the payroll taxes, what I also call FICA taxes, finally also known as Social Security and Medicare taxes. And the Democrats say, you're going to undermine Social Security and you're going to undermine um, uh, Medicare because you're not going to bring in enough money for these things. Well, why is that? They're claiming it's because you're going to be deficit spending. You're going to be spending money that you haven't yet taken in. Excuse me. But wait a second, folks. This is what the Democrats do all the time. Let's be fair. Republicans have done it uh, for many years as well. Right now, all of these bailouts or whatever we're calling them today, given the the COVID pandemic, uh, that's all deficit spending. We're spending money that is not in the government coffers right now. The idea is that we raise it later. We pay off the debt. We, We issue bonds so that we can spend that money. And those bonds are a loan from people who have given money and they get paid back at an interest rate. And that's how the government spends in a deficit. They don't actually print money. People think, well, I just print. No, they don't just print money. There is a notion of printing money about liquidity. That's a different point. They actually raise the money through bonds. Same way a private company can do so. Same way you can borrow money from your neighbor or your credit card company. How do you spend money you don't have? You use a credit card, right? That's not money you have. That's why you put it on the credit card. And you pay it off over time, little by little. That's what the government does. So they do that all the time. We, every year, spend deficit. We do it too much. The conservative ideology is that we do it too much. 
And I agree with that. We need to cut back on that. But the Democrats are complaining that President Trump is going to spend into deficit on Social Security, etc. All the Democrats do is spend in deficit. This is the one area in which, no, 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 we can't extend the deficit there. Because their claim now, completely falsely, is, well, what will happen is he's going to cut the payments that the government makes out of uh, FICA taxes. Or to be clear, I said that wrong. He's going to cut Social Security and Medicare. That does not mean it at all. Not at all. One could, but that's a totally independent policy. The point is, when the government raises money, and when the government spends money, particularly at the federal level, by the way, it's somewhat different. The more local you get, when you get to state, when you get to locality, etc. At the federal level, raising money and spending money are two different things. You can spend money you don't have. Now, as a conservative, I can tell you, you can't do it forever or nearly so because you're going to run out of money and you're going to run out of <clears throat> the ability to raise debt as well. But on a short-term basis, the left, the Dems are complaining that we're going to engage in deficit spending. Much of the debate that the president has, has had with the left about spending on the pandemic is that the Democrats want to spend more into debt. This one area, they don't. Pure politics, folks. Pure politics entirely. <clears throat> and that's what I want to emphasize to you. Let's move on. I want to talk about something else that I was impressed with. There was an article uh, in a publication that folks like me read, law professors, some others read it. It's written by a, a tax professor out in California. Actually, now he's a dean of a law school out in California. And he was the second dean to contribute $125,000 to his school. The other dean did it for a different school, to be clear. Uh, given the extra expenses that students are facing, and uh, that money is supposed to go to help those students out. So, yes, I want to applaud this dean for doing that, but I want to, do so I want to say something else here, a broader point, as I always try to make on the Dave Ellswick show here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Incidentally, you can listen to Dave's show, of course, uh, asynchronously, meaning at a different time. He's got a podcast. Uh, you can look that up on the website for 101.1, The Answer. <clears throat> the point is that the left, and mind you, as you know, you've heard me say it many times, uh, legal academia, a academia in general, meaning professors, university professors, are overwhelmingly leftist. To be clear, and we can talk about this later, that's because professors discriminate against hiring conservatives because there's so few conservatives there in the first place. How did I get in? I squeezed in, and it's to a credit of the folks uh, at my school that hired me. But as a general matter... Conservatives are disfavored in being hired. So this dean and another dean gave $125,000 to their school. It's a lot of money, no doubt. Deans generally make roughly double 
uh, if not more, the average faculty member. So the average dean... Uh, hey, Robert, if, that's if, a great place yes, to stop. We are just about to head to the news um, that you are listening to the Dave Ellswick Show. This is 101.1 FM, The Answer. So I am Robert Stamick filling in for Dave. We were talking about how a couple of deans at law schools gave a rather sizable gift to their law schools. And now I'm going to connect to you why I think that's important, because it was a little obscure, I fear. It's important because liberals talk a lot about uh, being progressive. Well, what does progressive mean? It means those with more are supposed to spend more for the common good. Now, that's a dangerous notion if it's extended too far. But at its most basic level, even conservatives agree with that. We have a progressive tax system in which the very wealthy pay on their higher portion of income a higher percentage because the notion is that the government can take more of that money without impacting the food bill, without impacting the heating bill, that kind of thing, of course. So deans often make double or more what the average faculty member makes. So the idea is they can pay more. And so we see two, two deans from across the country doing this. But I pointed out not to only compliment them, which I certainly do, but to say, why don't we see more? Why don't we see more of that? And I have an answer for you folks. It's because progressives, progressives talk a good story. They don't live a good story. What do I mean by that? I mean, think about this for a moment. You know that the typical claim regarding affirmative action is that we need to prioritize the hiring the use of affirmative action in hiring, obviously, uh, of minorities. Okay. And you hear leftists make this claim all the time in, amongst other places, academia. I hear it all the time. Absolutely. I've been in academia for a long time. I've worked in various places in different capacities in academia. I know other people who work in academia. I've heard it myself in a a variety of places, and I've heard it from others. In fact, I've never not heard it in academia. Okay, so far, that's their claim. Their claim is we need to do more hiring, uh, focusing on, specializing on hiring minorities. My question is, why don't those who are white, in particular white men in those positions, who are arguing for diversity hiring, resign their jobs. Let me be clear here. If you don't think as a white man that there are enough minorities in the position that you hold, one way to get more minorities in that position is for you as a white man to give up your job in exchange for someone who is not a white man, a minority, a woman, a minority woman. Why not do that? I've never seen it happen. I've seen, amongst others, right, we see uh, minorities argue for uh, hiring of more minorities, but giving up one for the other doesn't do anything. So I'm not asking why they don't do it, but I've heard plenty of liberal leftists, I should say, white men say, we need to do more hiring of minorities. 
without saying, here's a really good way for us to do it. I'll give up my position. I've never heard that. Why? Because they want the other guy, the other person to give up their position. It's selfish and it's a lie, right? And so you see the same thing when it comes to redistributing income. Oh, the other guy needs to give up more money because he makes more money. Well, do you make more money? Oh, yes. Have you given to your school? Oh, no. Why not? Oh, well, you see, I'm different. Where do we see that? We see that with Bill de Blasio, right? He has all uh, sorts of excuses uh, why he can do all sorts of things that everybody else in New York City cannot. I have now been alerted that our good friend, Chris Corbett, is on the line. Chris, are you there? Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Can you hear me? I can, indeed. It's always my pleasure. Let me just remind the audience, Chris Corbett is an attorney in Little Rock and Conway. He lives up in Conway, of course. Uh, He's also a professional engineer, uh, and he is in the process, quite literally, of putting together the justice bus And by that, I mean a mobile (laughs) law office. It's really remarkable. It's really cutting edge. And so I want to mention it because you're going to see the Chris Corbett justice bus driving on the streets of Conway, on the highways between Conway and Little Rock, and of course, in the Little Rock, North Little Rock area. Chris, we were talking about, and you probably heard, how the left is very good about suggesting that somebody else gives something up. But when it comes to, for example, but there are other contexts, uh, legal academics uh, amongst them, white men say, we need to hire more minorities. My question is, why don't those white men who are arguing that we need to hire more minorities give up their positions explicitly for hiring even more minorities? Why do you think they don't do that? That, it's amazing, Rob, that you Isn't brought it? this up. Is actually, I've been thinking about um, college and college tuition and um, the uh, the ability for professors to deliver a good product. And I think is a great time if there's a budget a budget crush going on in colleges right now. Since when have colleges and the administrative people running colleges had their feet held to the fire in several respects? One, bringing a better product, and two, lowering the cost. This would be a fantastic time to do that, but that's not in their incentive, uh, right? It's not in there. They're not incentivized to do that, um, and for them to uh, be be double talking, be speaking out of both sides of their mouth. Uh, we want to bring more diverse diversity into the college, but yet are unwilling to make any cuts. Um, I think it's going to be time to pay the piper maybe this semester or next next spring when um, colleges are hurting for tuition. Well, Chris, you're exactly right on this broader point in particular about the fact that colleges still need to balance their books. Universities yeah. need to balance their right. books. And they can talk and talk and talk, uh, but they've got to produce. And when they don't, uh, that is a hardship. Now, we see for state universities, and I work for a state university, and I'm glad to work for a public university, in fact, all else being equal. I think that's a positive thing. They can ride the tide of economic difficulty for, for a longer time because the government can subsidize their operations, but only to a limited degree, meaning that they could yeah. do it longer, but they don't. But you're absolutely right. Let's see colleges 
uh, sort of pony up. And what we have seen uh, across the country is we've seen cuts uh, by universities. We haven't seen this yet here in Arkansas or at all, uh, cutting significantly, uh, but they don't dig into their endowment. And people keep asking, what's the endowment for? What are you using that endowment for? Uh, And so it shows that across the country, these administrators that are cutting faculty but not dipping into the endowment don't value that faculty, having a a broad and diverse faculty, the way they claim to. Excellent point. Excellent right. point. Uh, let, let, let me let me read you well, something some quickly, schools, Chris. I, some schools are right. raising tuition right now. Sure, that's right. Yeah, and it's difficult, right? I, I know that you just yeah. uh, um, enrolled your daughter well a year ago uh, up in Fayetteville. Yeah. What generation? Right. Uh, Fayetteville attendee is she now? Fifth uh, generation. She's, she's fifth ge- fifth generation. That's right. Amen, brother. When when yeah. when you ultimately decide to run for Senate up there, hopefully in 2022, uh, it's certainly not going to go unnoticed that uh, you are fourth generation and your daughter is fifth generation University of Arkansas. That's really remarkable. It's pretty neat. It is neat. It's terrific. It's really terrific. Well, they put out a nice product up there uh, at Fayetteville. I mean that. Uh, Many of the, the schools, of course, I'm proud of uh, many of the things that we do at my law school as well. And, of course, right. you were attendee oh, yeah. at the Bowen Law School. A graduate, I should say. By the way, let Absolutely. me emphasize, he not only attended, he graduated. <laughs> it, was, That's right. it was touch and go there, wasn't it, Chris? Come on. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. <laughs> Chris, listen to this wonderful story. It's not true. But it's a wonderful story that addresses the very issues uh, that we're talking about. Hopefully I can get most of the story out, and then we're going to take a quick break as we do uh, between the half hours. Uh, So this is fake, but it it bespeaks a broader truth that an economics professor made a statement that he never failed a single student, but now he failed the entire class. Not true, but why? Uh, That class had insisted that socialism worked, And if it was enacted, um, everybody would be better off. Well, they were sold on socialism. Of course, that's not true. Socialism doesn't work. And the professor said, okay, we'll have an experiment. Uh, We will average everybody's grade. That's socialism, right? Everybody gets the same or near the same. So what happened? Uh, You know, it's economic justice. Well, we did grade justice. So at the first test, the grades were averaged. Everybody got a C. Students who studied hard were upset because they thought they deserved an A. And, of course, the students who didn't do a lot were happy because they got a free ride as getting the C. So then the next test came about, and everybody tried a little less hard. So the average was a D. Nobody was happy. Uh, the third test came around. Nobody did much of anything because you get paid the same no matter what. In grades or money, everybody got an F. So at the end of the semester... Everybody got an F. And the professor told the students uh, that socialism would ultimately fail because when the reward is great, the effort to succeed is great. That's capitalism. But when the uh, uh, reward is low, nobody makes any effort. And then you wind up getting no output. And so this is, uh, is fake, but it's a story 
story of how socialism works or would work in the classroom, and it's how socialism works in life itself. So, Heidi, why don't we take a break now before I continue uh, blathering on? And then when we come back, Chris and I will talk about this story and how it relates to these claims for socialism that the left is making, including, by the way, the Biden campaign. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave. On the line with us is Chris Corbett. We had some technical challenges during the break. Chris, are you still with us? No. Can hear us. Uh, Chris, if you're listening in and can uh, articulate something, if you haven't been kidnapped, uh, let us know. Uh, I think we have uh, uh, some technical difficulties. We're supposed to put everything Hello? Well, I, I can't tell what's happening. Heidi, maybe you can work something out with Chris offline. We were talking about this story, fake story, about how a professor essentially failed an entire class because he adopted socialist policies in the class. And what that results in is a lack of incentive, right? If everybody gets the same no matter what, then nobody tries because why try harder and get the same as those who don't try. Well, we're all in it for the common good, you see, Rob. Yeah, yeah, good luck with that. Take a look at around the world historically to see what has happened with socialism to know that notion is simply false. So I point all of this out to say, look, folks, the Dems quite literally are pushing so- socialist ideas. And the result is a lack of incentive, a lack of reward, and a lack of income. You can't, as we've often said on Dave's show, you keep taxing other people uh, to raise money and eventually you run out of money, other people's money to spend. And that's what goes on with socialism. That goes on with this notion, this example in the classroom of adopting socialism. So, of course, Dave's audience well knows that these are failed ideas, but it's still useful to talk about them to make sure that when you are out there talking with your friends, your neighbors, your relatives at Thanksgiving, you can tell them politely without engendering controversy that their ideas have been demonstrated false. They are literally pushing ideas that have failed left and right throughout history. So. I can't tell you uh, whether it's good uh, or bad to talk about it with your friends and relatives, but I can tell you that the ideas are not good. Chris, are you back on the line with us? Yeah, sorry about that. Sorry about that. No worries. So, Chris, as you heard, likely, and as we talked about during the break, what are your thoughts about this wonderful uh, hypothetical in the classroom in terms of how socialism fails us all? I think it's a fantastic example for um, young college students that are being indoctrinated by the radical left professors at most of these universities to understand how socialism will work long term. It sounds like utopia in, in the beginning. Everybody gets good stuff. Everybody gets free stuff. But then you drive it home and the A students get pissed off about the F students getting C's. The F students end up benefiting from the top students' labor. And eventually, those top students will quit. It's, I'm not working hard for A's because A's are hard to get. I'm not going to work hard and, and try to get A's when, I, when, I get a, when everybody gets C's. 
So I, I, my labor is I become you become disenfranchised, and that's what's happened. You can see there's not this is not like um, sh- shocking news. It's happening in Venezuela. Uh, people are starving down there. Uh, the the people in the top of Venezuela corrupted the whole the whole country, and they've stolen millions out of that country. And the people at the bottom are starving. Exactly right. That's just a wonderful example because it shows you the application of socialism and what it actually does. Notwithstanding, by the way, that we see it over and over again. The Soviet Union failed. All of these Soviet satellites uh, failed for the exact same reason. And yet everybody says, oh, but don't worry, you see, Chris. We figured out the, the magic formula. It's like the magic beans from Jack and the Beanstalk. We figured out the yeah. magic beans, and we're going to uh, get a beanstalk that goes straight to gold. Nonsense. <laughs> now, Chris, of course, you've seen that uh, Joe Biden's staff picked Kamala Harris to be the vice presidential nominee. Joe was busy eating oatmeal at the time, so he didn't know what was going on. But in any event, uh, so people are applauding her pick as the first vice presidential candidate uh, of color, uh, as well as the first American uh, person of Indian heritage, so American Indian, but meaning not American Indian like American Indian. The, the terms get confusing, right. unfortunately. But uh, a, a yeah. person with heritage from the nation of of India. So again, I've always said, I said this when Obama was nominated and elected. All else being equal, it's nice to recognize when we cross a threshold and see someone uh, of a particular cohort uh, in a position that has not previously be, been filled by someone from such a group. It's nice to recognize it. I don't look at it as a requirement, as a necessary benchmark, because I judge people not by the color of their skin, not by right. the, the country of their uh, relatives uh, where they were born, but by what they say, what they do, what's in their hearts. Well, there yeah. is an article in the New York Times, an, an opinion piece in the New York Times, uh, by uh, a, a person who's of... Uh, Indian descent, saying how great it is to see someone like Kamala Harris get this nomination because this woman is of Indian descent and Kamala Harris is of Indian descent and she likes to see that. Okay, again, no problem with that. I think all else being equal, that's good. Here's the critical part of the passage that demonstrates how disingenuous often that claim is. Uh, in 19, the 1965 law resulted in the flood of South Asian immigrants to the United States. Since then, many have been elected to office. Of course, that's a good thing, right? For this person and for everyone, indeed, all else being equal. Right. Recently, Bob, Bobby Jindal of Louisiana and Nikki Haley of South Carolina were governors with presidential aspirations. Of course, uh, you well know both of them are of Indian descent. So now here's the interesting part. The author says, but I felt no pleasure at seeing their rise as they adopted the talking points of the Republican Party, small government, economic retrenchment, states' rights, which hurt the poor white and black constituents in particular. Wait a second. So you're only proud, happy, etc. to see those. Oh, I think we're going to have to take a break. But think about that. Think about how we're only happy to see the, 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 the right type of minority, according to the left, take the position. Anyway, I heard the music playing, so I think it's time for us to take a break, and we will come back after these messages. 
slowly I become one with the mud. But if I can swim after 40 days in my mind, is crushed by the crashing waves that be up so high that I cannot fall and be for days we have on the line with us our fantastic congressman french hill and so we're going to get right to it congressman how are you this morning robert good morning it's great to be with you thank you so much uh we've got a lot to cover and so i want to get right into it uh one of the things that i was intrigued by was that you've given out a golden fleece award so to speak where we know about these these things that is where the government is wasting money and you highlighted some waste that is going on in the irs and i would like you to talk about that but before you talk about it i'd like to make one quick comment on that i many years ago, uh, served as a counsel on the Senate side in the U.S. Congress. And I remain frustrated to this day when congressmen and senators are not, don't get a response from government agencies. And I wish, frankly, that congressmen and senators would be more vigilant about cutting off funding to agencies that don't respond to elected officials. So let's talk about the problem that you saw at the IRS and what kind of hammer we can bring to uh, as a solution. Well, what you say, Robert, is true. You you recognize something that I guess Congress uh, has recognized since the very first Congress back in the, the 1790s, which is when the executive isn't responsive, can we use the power of the purse <laughs> to beat up on them? And uh, that's still done. I don't think it's done as effectively as it might be. For example, you have years and years of IRS problems, but you don't really uh, get uh, cuts in the IRS budget, obviously. And so it's people are more subtle. But I think embarrassment is an equally good tool in Washington just to point out incompetence. So in addition to trying to cut people's spending uh, through Congress's power of the purse, this uh, Golden Fleece approach is a way every month for five years I've del- tried to deliver the news to the executive branch that they are out of sync with the American people. And the IRS was the big winner this month because they gave uh, $1.4 billion of the economic stimulus payments, the impact payments, to dead people. And they were also, the IG says, they <clears throat> delivered a huge set of uh, of uh, payments incorrectly to uh, non-resident aliens, to foreign workers who are not legal residents, who also, the CARES Act said, were not eligible for a payment. And all of this, when we still have constituents here in Arkansas that never got their May or early June economic impact payment. We do cases every week for our constituents that still have not gotten their payment that they're eligible for. 
it's really remarkable. And it bespeaks a broader issue. As you well know, the Democrats have said things like we need to give guaranteed government health care to people who are here illegally. And that's like giving away, in my mind, rainbows and unicorns, meaning we don't have enough money to spend on American citizens, and they want to spend money on people who are not even supposed to be here. It's great if we could give health care to everybody in the world, but we can't. And I'm at a loss to understand why the Democrats don't understand this point. What are your thoughts on that related issue? Well, of course, you're right. This is uh, the CARES Act, very specifically said, which was a huge bipartisan bill voted on in both houses with overwhelming majorities, said that we would not give uh, uh, the relief checks, the household uh, economic payment checks, to uh, illegal aliens. We purposely put that in the bill. And we have very scarce resources in this country. We're running an enormous budget deficit. And we're working very hard to take care of our eligible citizens' needs, whether it's Medicare or Medicaid or Social Security or these economic payments. And there's just not a basis for providing that support to someone who's in the country illegally. It's really kind of a kick in the pants if you think about it, because that is someone who's not supposed to be here is already violating our laws, and then they get a a, a compensation, a reward, I would say, and I'm not alone in saying it's an economic notion, a reward for doing bad things. And frankly, to some extent, you can't blame them. I don't mean that morally, but you can understand. Look, if you can sneak into this country or stay here beyond your permitted time frame, uh, and then you get paid to do so, uh, of course, it's wrong, but I kind of get why you're doing it. So to some extent, uh, I'm not saying it should be done, but I kind of get it. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we all know the motivations there. The real motivation is to leave a country where there's gang violence, murder, mayhem, and no jobs to try to get to a country where there's relative safety and opportunity and, and income. So we understand the plight of the migrant, and we understand all that. But there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. And one of my highest honors over my time in Congress has been to speak at naturalization ceremonies at the federal courthouse in Little Rock, and they're inspirational. And the stories of these families becoming permanent legal residents, uh, becoming citizens in the country, getting earning their citizenship record is inspiring because many of them have spent decades trying to do it, years and years trying to do it the right way, the legal way. And to see those celebrations, that's a whole nother reason why we should enforce our border security laws and reform our broken immigration system for more clarity and more uh, direction. It's such a wonderful point, Congressman, because uh, as you might know, both of my parents were immigrants that went through exactly that process. And it's so often and so easy for the left to falsely accuse us, you and I and other conservatives, of being anti-immigrant and being xenophobic. And, of course, it's kind of silly uh, for you and me and, and, and most of others who uh, want to enforce immigration law to make that claim when you go to these immigration ceremonies. When my parents were immigrants themselves. Uh, But all we want to do is say, 
Look, just do it in a legal way. We let in huge amounts of immigrants every year. And the analogy I always like to talk about is to say, well, if you have a dinner uh, uh, set the table and you have dinner for your family of, say, four people, and you invite two people who are in some sort of difficult time over for dinner, you're helping people. That's a good thing. That's what we do with immigration. But if you open your door and you say to everybody that needs help, come in, well, then nobody gets enough food. So we're actually, everybody loses in that construct. And that's what happens, of course, if you have open borders. And the left consistently talks about notions that equate to open borders, I suspect in large measure because they believe they will get voters to support them. I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think that's uh, certainly the desire of the progressive left is, as you know, no police. We're defunding the police. We're abolishing ICE. We don't have immigration laws. We just have people going back and forth around the world, I guess. And they're all going to go to the richest countries and bankrupt them. I mean, I don't I don't know what the uh, motivation of it is. They may well get voters, but we need to reform our immigration system and remind everyone that over a million people enter this country legally uh, each year and become valued citizens. In fact, one of the great economic benefits of the United States compared to Japan, compared to all of Europe, all the entire EU, certainly compared to Russia, uh, is that, and China, I would add, uh, believe it or not, Mm -hmm. since everybody's Mm -hmm. in the news about China, we have a positive growth in this country demographically of families Mm -hmm. because of our birth rate and our immigration policy. And countries that don't have uh, a family-friendly, positive environment for people to grow their families, the, the nuclear unit of our society, and have high quality immigration are suffering. I mean, uh, Russia will be half the size that it is now in just a few years. Uh, Population in China is decreasing. Population in Japan is decreasing. Japan, for the first time in its history, in its thousands of years history, is now admitting legal residents to do work in Japan. So we need to count our blessings that we have a robust immigration here and be proud of it instead of condemning it. But... Many of the legal aspects about border security and admission to the United States when you come here illegally are messed up, and they need reform. And Senator Cotton, for example, has a merit-based reform, which doesn't stop family reunification. Again, that's a charge of the left. It just simply rebalances it to about half and half, 60-40 merit-based versus purely family reunification, which we started in the Johnson administration uh, and then in the Reagan reforms. Those two huge immigration reforms enhanced uh, and put a priority on family unification. And we're going to go to break in just a moment, and then we'll hold you over just a short while for the next segment and then let you go, of course. I know you're busy. But that point about family reunification, I think it's a bit of a misnomer, no less, is such an important one because it has basically shifted the ability of the American people and the U.S. government to make decisions about who gets admitted to this country to the recent immigrants, basically saying, you guys are in charge of who is the next person in the 
door. I'm sorry. I welcome the recent immigrants as I uh, sort of notionally have welcomed my parents who became immigrants. But my parents were not in a position to then decide who's the next person in the door. We as an entirety uh, of uh, the U.S., the American people, through their representatives, should be making those decisions. And that's the problem with this misnamed notion of family reunification. Let's hold you over, uh, Senator uh, Heidi. Let's go to a break and we will be uh, Senator, I'm sorry, Congressman, uh, Congressman, and we will go to a break and be back with you very shortly. Steinbuck filling in for Dave. And with us today, we have Congressman French Hill. Congressman, let's move on to talk about Congressional uh, Startup Day, Business Startup Day. Uh, I know that you are always interested in entrepreneurship. Can you tell us a little about what's going on with this issue? Well, I've always believed uh, the best economy is one that has an easy method for people to come together and start new businesses. So I'm glad, glad Congress has a startup day. I've been an entrepreneur myself before I was in Congress, and I've started the Entrepreneurship Caucus in the House. It's a bipartisan caucus, and we also have an Entrepreneurship Caucus in the Senate. So uh, today we're honoring all those men and women out there who get up every day and with perseverance and strength of character and start their own business in, uh, in America. And uh, I had the pleasure yesterday doing a teleconference with uh, the conductor, which is uh, up at UCA in Conway that helps businesses uh, expand and grow and creates a culture of entrepreneurship. And I also visited with the Venture Center here, ably run by Wayne Miller, uh, and such a credit to the fintech startup community, particularly here in Arkansas, where we value our technology startups, uh, particularly in the financial services area. It's really wonderful. And it really bespeaks a, a somewhat broader point, which is the beauty of capitalism. And I'll emphasize, as I always do, capitalism is not a government imposed system. Capitalism means we're free to do whatever we want, essentially, uh, amongst ourselves to trade goods and products amongst ourselves. That's the difference between a socialist system where government makes decisions about business and your preferences versus capitalism, which simply means government's not interfering with our free choices. But, and the beauty of capitalism as it intersects with startup is that people know about their issues. They take risks. They often fail. They sometimes, excuse me, they often succeed. They sometimes fail. And they make those individual choices on their own behalf. And under a socialist system that the left seems to be openly pursuing, they want me to pay for their failures, but somehow I'll never benefit from the successes. Isn't that true? Uh, it's 100% true. Government planning and socialism is the direction now of the new Democratic Party. They want more government planning, more government-run business. Elizabeth Warren even wants uh, government to control the boardrooms and who's on the board of directors of large publicly traded corporations. I mean, it's just a uh, uh, kind of 1930s Europe concept, which has been thoroughly discredited over the years many, many times. So we got more to talk about there, but I'm afraid that the uh, Biden-Harris campaign has a lot of socialists backing it that believe government should do the planning, government should provide government-driven health care, government-driven boardroom activity, government-regulated business, government control prices. This is what they want. 
Well, it's it's a critical point, and it's, it's a critical point to highlight. That's why we need to make sure everyone gets out and vote in this coming election and future elections, but we'll do one at a time. And this November, don't forget, don't take it for granted. You need to vote for every position. It's president on down. It's congressman. It's senator. Uh, it's all the positions are, uh, are going to be on the ballot, and it's critical. Um, let's move on to the latest on COVID. What's going on that you can tell us about that? Well, I think as a lot of listeners know, um, at the end of July, the pandemic extra $600 per week ran out. It was structured as just a temporary boost to those from unemployment from the 1st of April until the end of July. And also the Paycheck Protection Program uh, expired on August 8th, which was a grant program for small businesses trying to cope through the virus, keep people hired. And uh, that was a, a program that really, I think, helped a lot of small businesses temporarily hurt by the government shutdown during the uh, pandemic. And we need more flexibility for our state governments to spend the CARES Act emergency money they got back in uh, April. So Congress has been debating those points, how to fix them, whether or not to carry them on, what's necessary to continue to kill the virus and get this economy fully open. Um, Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Senate, has made a common-sense, bipartisan offer in the Senate, and that's been rejected by the Trump administration and by uh, Nancy Pelosi. I mean, not the Trump administration, by Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House. And so the Trump administration has been negotiating between senators and Nancy Pelosi to see if they can come up with a bipartisan bill uh, to continue the coronavirus fight and anything else we need to do to try to get our economy back functioning. Understand how Nancy Pelosi, even in her caucus, can say uh, to the American public that she doesn't, didn't support the continuation of some portion of that $600, is it a week, uh, of unemployment insurance during the negotiation process. So the president, I think he said, well, let's continue 400 of the 600 uh, until we settle on something. And she said no. Now, I I know one answer is she's playing pure politics, but I'm not sure even how the politics work out on that. Basically, she said no to giving out this relief to Americans because she wants more. But how does giving temporary relief impact her negatively? And how does she think that those that are allied with her and those that support her uh, like that outcome? Nancy Pelosi is an out-of-touch uh, person trying to run the House. She's lost control of the Democratic conference in the House. It's now controlled by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the more liberal, left-leaning members of the House Democratic Party. That's who controls the House now. So she doesn't have the internal control, and she's out of touch. I mean, she said how she spent her pandemic was buying expensive chocolate and storing it in her two sub-zero freezers (laughs) in her kitchen. I mean, this woman is not not competent at running the House of Representatives. She asked for $3 Amen, trillion sorry, more Congressman, We're going to have to cut you off because we are literally running out of time. Always All a joy to have time. you on the show. You Please soon. keep in touch.
This is the Dave Ellsworth Show. I am Robert Simon filling in for Dave. Uh, we just had a wonderful, wonderful discussion with Congressman French Hill. He's my congressman. I mean that in two ways. One is I live in his district. And two, I'm a great supporter of his as well. Uh, and I remind people as a general matter, as I said during the last segment, you have to make sure you're voting this November. Now, you can do it through absentee ballot. And by the way, the president supports absentee ballot. He just doesn't support mass voting by mail. That's a different process. And we don't have that different process in Arkansas. But you can vote by absentee ballot or you can go to the polling place. Uh, and if you do so, uh, you know, you uh, observe social distancing. I'm sure they'll have markers so that you're not too close to people, that kind of thing. So just remember, get out and vote this November. I'm, I say that about every November, but uh, this November is a very, very important election. Uh, before the congressman came on, I had read to you a section of a New York Times opinion piece in which the author, who's of Indian descent, India, the country in this instance, uh, Indian descent, said how proud she was to see someone else of Indian descent uh, in a position uh, of um, uh, an elected position, Senator Harris, and potential and running for vice president. And but in the article, she said, well, people like uh, Bobby Jindal and Nikki Haley, uh, both elected officials. They were both governors, in fact, uh, uh, who are of Indian descent as well. They don't count. Wait, what? You see, folks, they don't count because the left's notion of racial politics, of identity politics, is it's a good thing if you're of a particular subgroup and you are in a position of authority, an elected position, another position of authority, if those two things are true and you're a progressive and you're a leftist. It's not good if you represent that minority group, if you're in a position of authority, but you don't agree with them on their politics. And it's, it's the third element that eviscerates the other two. So you're not proud that the person is an Indian American. You're not proud that an Indian American holds this position of authority. You are only proud if it's an Indian American holding a position of authority who's also a leftist. Please, it demonstrates the disingenuous nature of this identity politics program, which is really a method of saying we want our folks and by our folks, I don't mean I don't mean of this particular identity of identity politics. Of course, I mean, our progressive leftist folks in power and the way we're going to do that is under the cover under the cover of racial politics. And on that very point, uh, there is a very interesting development that I just saw uh, from the Journal of the American Heart Association. An article was published, peer-reviewed, and published by the Journal of the American Heart Association by a doctor uh, by the name of Norman Wang. I'm drawing the conclusion that Dr. Wang is of Asian descent. I think that's fair. To, are we allowed to do that? Are you allowed to say that, Rob? Well, I say it, and I think it's likely true. That's right. I'm sorry. Uh, well, you know, we're only allowed to recognize racial identity when it's for a progressive cause. Well, sorry. I, I, I didn't get that handbook. So Dr. Wang, who I believe to be of Asian descent, meaning uh, of minority descent, writes an article about 
diversity, inclusion, and equity. The title is that plus evolution of race and ethnicity considerations for the cardiology workforce in the United States of America, America from 69 to 2019. I'm going to read you part of the abstract. That's the summary of the article and then tell you about really the remarkable events that have occurred thereafter. So the author writes that since 1969, racial and ethnic preferences have existed throughout the American Medical Academy. We know that to be true. The primary purpose has been to increase the number of blacks and Hispanics within the physician workforce as they were deemed to be, quote, underrepresented in medicine, end quote. To this day, the goal continues to be population parity or proportional representation. That means that when people talk about representation, be it in medical school, be it in the profession of uh, doctors in general, cardiology specifically, people say, well, the population of, say, African-Americans is 13 percent. What's our population of cardiologists? And they compare the two. We see it all the time. I've written on the issue of uh, law school admissions about those same notions. The, the author of this article, uh, Dr. Wayne, goes on to say these affirmative action programs were traditionally voluntary, created and implemented at the state or institutional level, uh, etc. Despite these effort, efforts, numerical targets for underrepresented minorities set by the AMA, uh, um, excuse me, the, Amer- the Association of American Medical Colleges have consistently fallen short uh, and failures have largely been attributable to the limited qualified applicant pool in legal challenges to the use of race and ethnicity and admissions to institutions of higher education. In other words, two things have been an issue. One is we talk about 13%, for example, uh, African-American population, but that doesn't mean there's that representation in colleges. We know that's not the case. I think African-Americans make up about 9% of the college population. So if you're trying to reach 13%, uh, representation in medical school, but you can only draw from 9% African-American college uh, representation, you already have a disconnect, don't you? And also the issue that has been ongoing is uh, how race can be used in, a, in the admission process, because if it's overused, that violates the law. That is discrimination. That violates equal protection. The summary of the article goes on to say, in response, programs under the appellation of diversity, inclusion, et cetera, have recently been created to increase the number of blacks and Hispanics as medical school students, et cetera. Uh, These new diversity programs are mandatory, created and implemented at the national level, imposed throughout all stages of academic medicine, et cetera, and intended to be permanent. The purposes of this paper is to provide an overview of the policies that have been created to impact the racial and ethnic composition of cardiology, to consider the evolution of racial and ethnic preferences, and to create and assess, I'm summarizing, current paradigms and to consider potential solutions. Okay. Well, by the way, I've written articles on similar issues as it relates to law school. Here's the interesting part, which I will disclose, and then we're going to take a break, uh, Heidi, uh, so we can uh, uh, get uh, whatever we get in, the news and weather, et cetera. So I'm now reading from the American Medical Association that says a March 2020 paper published in the journal, uh, excuse me, the American Heart Association, uh, published in the journal of the American Heart Association has recently become the subject of significant discourse and warranted concern. The paper by Dr. Wayne, uh, and it gives the title, uh, advocates for ending racial and ethnic preferences. By the way, California ended racial and ethnic preferences by law across the state. So this is not some sort of 
crazy out there idea. If, if the Californians can do it, it's certainly legal and it's certainly reasonable. Uh, advocates for ending racial and ethnic preferences for undergraduate medical school admissions and against affirmative action initiatives. There are plenty of conservatives that argue for that every day, concluding, wait for it, folks, incorrectly that black and Hispanic trainees in medical in medicine, excuse me, are less qualified than white and Asian trainees. So I want to talk about what that potentially means. It's not clear. And what I've discovered uh, in my research regarding medical, excuse me, regarding law school. Uh, And so let's take a break now, Heidi, and we'll come back and talk more about this very important topic. This is I'm Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on 101.1 FM, The Answer, this morning. I was reading to you a comment, a statement by the American Heart Association when they withdrew a paper that they had already published and that was peer-reviewed by a Dr. Wayne out of Pittsburgh, a very highly respected medical establishment, by the way, in which apparently, I can't read the paper because they took it offline, it argued against affirmative action in um, medical schools, etc., cetera, the, the program to lead to the development of doctors and of cardiologists in particular. So uh, he was talking about affirmative action in medical school and the residency programs, that kind of thing. Uh, and according to their statement, I, I don't know what the paper says, according to the American Heart Association statement, the uh, paper concluded, quote, incorrectly that black and Hispanic trainees in medicine are less qualified than white and Asian trainees, end quote. The the statement from the uh, AHA goes on to say the Wayne paper has rightfully drawn criticism for its misrepresentations and conclusions. AHA denounces the views expressed in the article. Those views are misrepresentation of the fact and are contrary to our organization's core values and historic commitment to promoting diversity and inclusion in medicine and science. So two things that we have to unpack there, folks. If the authors made untrue statements about fact, if he said a number of uh, was supposed to be 13 and it really was 25, obviously that's simply a false statement and that needs to be corrected. If he said these number of people uh, pass the boards or don't pass the boards and it's not true, well, that's, that needs to be corrected. We don't know that because the American Heart Association hasn't put out the particulars. But it also says that the views and the conclusions are wrong. Well, views and conclusions, by the way, folks, are opinions. And they go on to say, we endorse uh, a commitment to promoting diversity and inclusion, suggesting, we don't know for sure, but suggesting that the views that are wrong are the fact that this doctor does not support affirmative action. So now you're not allowed to have a conservative viewpoint, according to the American Heart Association, that says that affirmative action is not a good thing. Remember, the state of California banned it, banned it. But apparently, according to the American Heart Association, conservatives can't have that view. The liberal state of California has that view. As a state, the state is run under a law that says there shall be no affirmative action. But according to the American Heart Association, it appears that having that view is, quote, wrong. 
So no longer are facts simply the province, it appears, of what is right and wrong. Opinions are right and wrong. And this is the move that we have been seeing for years now. The left tells us that we're not allowed to have certain views. And if you have certain views, as Tucker Carlson likes to say, racist, you're racist, because you are actually for equal treatment for everybody. You're against affirmative action as it's applied. Because what's critical, and I mentioned this on the Kim Hammer show recently, uh, what we call affirmative action today is not that little bit of uh, a, a little thumb on the scale as the analogy went. It's a brick on the scale. It's a dramatic impact. And so it says here that it incorrectly, the paper that is, incorrectly concludes that black and Hispanic trainees in medicine are less qualified than white and Asian trainees. Now, I don't know what is meant by that because, of course, I'm not permitted to read that paper because the American Heart Association has silenced Dr. Wang, has has um, canceled Dr. Wang, has um, put a muzzle on Dr. Wang by taking down his paper. Doesn't allow for a debate. But I can tell you about the significant research that I've done about admissions into law school and I and the. Two of the key criteria that we look at when we admit students to law school are the LSAT scores. That's the uh, test you need to take to get into law school. Of course, you've heard of the SATs. That's a test to get into college. And there are the MCATs to get into medical schools. So every type of school has an entrance exam that you're supposed to take. And we look at undergraduate uh, grade point average, obviously, as well. Now, we look at one's personal statement. We look at the references that they have and any other work or experience that they may have had as well. So we look at all those things. But to say that we don't look at the two sort of discrete number-based factors that I've just described is simply untrue. Of course we do. Those are part of what we call qualifications to go to law school. So the higher, the better you do on the LSAT, the more qualified we view you as going to law school. Now, some lefties might argue otherwise, but then the response is, then why are you looking at it? Well, you see, the LSAT doesn't really tell us much of anything. Oh, okay, so do you guys still ask for the LSAT scores? Oh, yeah, sure we do. Well, then it does matter, doesn't it? Well, it kind of matters, but it doesn't matter. It's marble mouth. It's nonsense. It's gobbledygook. When they try to defend uh, still having the exam, and yet claiming at times that it doesn't matter when they want to ignore the results. So it is a factor in determining uh, qualifications to go to law school. When we eliminate, if we ever do the LSAT, then you could say that's not a qualification. Today it's a qualification. And I can tell you across this country that law schools, on average, that means not everybody, but when you group them together, on average, lessen certain minorities with dramatically lower LSAT scores than white. And since, as I said, we consider that one of many qualifications to go to law school, or several, not many, but several, that is an indicator of a lower qualification to go to law school. And surprise, surprise, for the group that I analyzed, and this is translatable across the country, maybe not exactly number for number, maybe more so some places and less so other places, the group that I analyzed, we saw twice the bar failure rate for certain minorities than we did for whites. Well, why? 
Well, one could obviously see a connection between whether they were qualified, how qualified they were to go to law school, and then how well they performed on the bar exam. So this is not a hard concept to grasp, right? That is what I mean when I talk about the qualifications of the candidates to go to law school. And I suspect, but I don't know for sure, that is related to the notion that Dr. Wang was making when he was talking about those qualified to be in medical school or those qualified to be trained to be a doctor in medical school and thereafter. What were their scores on certain uh, metrics, including the MCAT? And so one could objectively say that one group overall, or another way to say it is on average, is less qualified on a particular metric than another group if the first group has a significantly lower score on that metric. That's what the metric means. But folks, you're not allowed to say that out loud, apparently. According to the American Heart Association, I'll say it. I've written about it. And what do we do about it? So then we see an article in which uh, someone was complaining about uh, the effects of the bar exam. And and in the article, uh, they say, well, we see that there are lower pass rates uh, on the bar exam uh, for minorities, uh, and we need to uh, consider that disparate impact, uh, whether that's fair. Well, meaning, if you, as I just described, I saw twice the bar failure rate uh, for certain minorities than I did for whites. I mean, well, that's, that's a disparate impact. Well, it's a disparate impact because you have let in students to law school uh, with disparate abilities, at least to the extent that those abilities are reflected in the LSAT score, and we believe they are. So then you say, well, then the outcome is no good. Well, it's related to the input. And yet, instead of trying to address the input issue, that's called pipeline issues. That is, we need to go downstream and ensure that we do a better job of training all people, including minorities, so they are equally qualified to get into law school, to get into medical school, etc. We say, well, the test on the, at the end of the process is no good because the outcomes aren't the same. Well, of course the outcomes aren't the same. We know the outcomes aren't going to be the same. How could you think that the outcomes would be the same when you know that the inputs aren't the same? That would be a remarkably unusual uh, occurrence. You take two different inputs and expect the same output. All right, Robert, we're just about to wrap up. Terrific. Folks, I want you to think about these important socialist uh, ideals that are being spread by the left telling us we're not allowed to think the truth. All right. Bye, this is the truth. Bye-bye. Radio station this morning. This is this is a duck. I got Joe in here in the studio with me. 
uh, we're filling in for Dave this morning. He's under the weather a little bit. So he'll be back with us here in a few days. Uh, we got some car questions to ask this morning. They sent it into the to the email today. So, Joe, how you been doing? I've been doing all right, Doc. We've just been staying busy. I know you guys have, too. Man, it's unreal for this time of the year. Yes, it is. You know, but, you know, two or three months from now, we may be standing there looking at one another. So Nobody knows what the future is going to bring with the COVID-19. Yes, you just... So. It's a new day. Every mm-hmm. morning when I open the door, I think uh, what's going to happen today that's yep. going to turn everything around and maybe get it back to halfway normal. But, you know, it is it is what it is. So Yeah, we just play the game. Yep. Get up and go every play morning. Play with the balls we got and the bats we got and yep. just go on. That's all oh, we, we got to catch a minute. We can catch something that's with. That's it. But uh, we got some questions this morning to answer. Uh, Dave is under the weather today, but he'll be back here in a few days. He'll get better and everything will be just fine with him. Uh, we're going to do the radio station here today, and then they'll play it back tonight sometime. So, Joe, we got some questions. You want to read one of them? Sure, Matthew. A 1998 Ford F-150 XLT, eight-cylinder, 4.6 liter. He says, sometimes my truck takes three to four tries to actually start. Why? When I try and start my truck, sometimes it will take three to four times before it starts. This happens about once every other week. The truck makes a noise that sounds like it is trying to start but can't. I think it is something to do with the starter, but just want a second opinion. What could be the problem? Age of that truck says probably it's got a starter drive that's going bad. I think say, yeah, a starter drive is messing up on it. And and if we could hear the noise, we could tell him right off the bat. Yeah, He's when, probably got a zinging noise when it does it. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm thinking because he says it won't start. It makes a noise like it's cranking over, but it's it's probably not cranking over. Yeah. The drive is just, and, and I'm sure that that's what's going on from his description. But, you know, we talk about this all the time. Noises are hard to diagnose when they're somebody's telling you what it sounds like because a lot of times we can go road test one or duplicate the noise and be spot on with the diagnosis yeah. because we've heard it a thousand times yeah you know and 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 as we always speak noises is hard to some customers can describe the noise pretty close yeah but some customers don't even get close to describing it you know and you're <laughs> you know their terminology is completely off from what the way we would word that so. yeah and you know my wife, she she hears me talk to people, and I'm, you know, Susie does you too, mm-hmm. and you know she can tell them what's wrong with it by hearing them talk, mm-hmm. but she has no earthly idea what to do with it. No, she has the information in her head, but you know that's it. Well, these girls that work for us in our offices, Doug, Ben, you brought that up. Let's touch on that in just a minute. You know, it's a family operation. You got your daughter-in-law in your office, my daughter in my office, my wife in my office, and your wife's over there at the shop too. Yeah. But they see what the customer comes in and what his complaint is and what kind of vehicle it is, and it's written up. And then when the job is diagnosed and repaired, they see what the repair order is. What went on on it. So they can take that information and say, well, the last one of them that came in here like that, this is what it took to fix it. Yeah. And you do that for years like our family members have. Yep. They get pretty darn good at diagnosing stuff without ever looking at a car because yeah. that's what you would call the personality of that vehicle. Yeah. And, and has and, certain and, failures. And as you, you know. say, you know, it's just because they see it every day. They hear a customer come in and explain it to me or Russell or Blake or Tim or somebody, you know, and then they come back and say, okay, hey, we put a pump on it that cured the problem or we put a starter on it that cured the problem, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we had one in here the other day with electric power steering and the guy mm-hmm. said to go down the road and said they want to make a column right here once in a while so what we thought it was i thought it was wrecking pinion you know, messing up on it mm-hmm. couldn't find out it was a program in it well i had one the other day that would just blow your mind it was a 2018 chevrolet had been wrecked and you could turn the uh, steering wheel to the right or left over 10 degrees and it would apply the brake on that side and it wouldn't set any codes and it had a new electric gear put in it and then anyway we went through this we said well no codes probably an electronic brake ebtcm electronic brake traction control module replaced it reflashed it did everything same issue same issue now, when this vehicle was wrecked, they put a steering column in it. And, of course, you got an upper <clears throat> steering wheel, steering <laughs> angle sensor, but you got one in the gear itself, too. Yeah. So when you calibrate those, you just line them up on zero. Yeah, put them back to zero. And That's they... correct. Well, we we ended up putting wheel speed sensor on one side. We thought maybe that was the issue. We couldn't prove it. But, you know, when you have one that's wrecked or you're dealing with a man-made problem, that's very difficult to repair. Very hard to find. And, and sometimes you will, in the course of doing that, say, well, I need to make sure this is a known good part and then retest it. And so we did that on a couple parts. But when it's all said and done, you know what we found wrong with that truck, Doug? Mm-hmm. Whoever put the column in it reused the original steering angle sensor in the column, come out of the old column, put it in the new put column. Put in the new one. Put it in upside down. Oh my so goodness. when I would center those... You was 180 degrees off. I was 180 off on one of them. The minute you made over a 10-degree turn to the left or right, it engaged the traction control because it said they made a 180-degree turn. They've turned the wheel upside oh. down. God. And so finding those problems like that are really, really difficult. But anyway. It, but, but then again, Joe, then you got to try to explain it to your customer. Hey. You betcha. You know, we went, we got 15 hours in it chasing this problem. And you're trying to explain it to the customer, and it is very hard sometimes to explain to the customer. It is very difficult, especially with dealing with the insurance company, and they're you know they're pretty knowledgeable folks. Plus, you got a body shop guy, and you're trying to explain it to him, and he's scratching his head. And when we finally found out what was done, I said, "Well, you know, let me show you." And I showed it to him. He said, "You're kidding me." I said, "Nope, your tech did that." So it, it is what it is. But 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 you know, just like you said sometimes the hunt is harder than the fix yeah i've you know broken wire yep. we've looked hours and hours and hours and hours to find it. i have pulled the whole dash warren harness out mm-hmm. and lay it on the ground and go through it one at a time it takes about two minutes to repair it when you find it but you've got 15 or 20 hours in it hunting it yep we we experience the same thing so it, it's difficult sometimes to say what what's what is easy cannot be easy but what is not easy can be easy sometimes and, yeah. and that's the best way to word that yeah and i've got now if it's if it's on all this electronic stuff if it's a broke wire run a new one and and it's a twisted pair we just put two wires two different color wires mm-hmm. in the in the vice and put another end in the drill start squeezing the trigger because you got to have 13 twists per inch mm-hmm. make the twisted pair tape them up and just lay them beside the wire harness and tie them to it and mm-hmm. Because you could, like I say, you could spend ten or twelve hours, and then customers don't understand you've got to spend ten or twelve hours to find a two-minute repair problem. Yeah, it's difficult to explain, but it's it's part of the part of the process. And you know, I guess I guess you'd word it like this: it was easy, everybody do it exactly, <laughs> exactly. 
and that's why you know uh that's why they're you know a good shop is staying busy right now because people are repairing stuff left and right nobody's hardly well start with ain't no new vehicles on the lot to buy well you know these i think folks right now with with uh like we started this show off talking about what's what's world going to be like in six months with covid i think a lot of folks are a little bit skittish about that as far as you know going out and going in debt for five six seven years on a new vehicle so you kind of gotta think that they're going to say well i can fix this one for this and it's paid for i'm just going to go along with that and it's you know financially well, they're they're trying to play it safe and another thing too people are not driving near as much as they was you know, a lot yeah. of people working from home nowadays, so mm-hmm. their car may sit there all day long and not get started, you know. Yep. So that's why, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, I've had customers come in a year ago. They'd have bought a new vehicle before they spent ten or $12,000 on this one to get it repaired. They'd, you sure. Know, they'd just go, I'll go trade it, you know. But uh, And like me and you were discussing about a contestant kit for one of these six, seven Fords. Yeah. From Ford, it's nine to 13 weeks back order, so – what do you do? Yeah, trucks, you know, and I thought, you know, and you know the customer because, mm-hmm. you know, yep. and I told him, he said, that's fine. Just fix it whenever you get, you know, get to me. Yeah, Damon's a good guy. He's an awful nice fella. He is, and and I know a bunch of these people that work for him, too. So, but uh, there again, you know, it's parts is getting a little bit harder to find than what they used to be. Yeah, it's like the Dodges, you know. I've got two in there, the five, seven Hemis. We're putting camshafts and lifters in, and uh, finding parts for them is difficult, too customers don't seem to understand that so i see them online where you can buy these upgrade kits where it eliminates the the yeah. mds on them and all that and i said well you see them on there i said but the minute you click put your credit card number in there yeah, it's going to go to back order five yeah. to eight weeks yep and i said and you're not getting your money back once you buy that i said so you're better off to call them and ask them if you call them and ask them they'll say no they're not in stock def modules for 17 18 and 19 dodges Yep. I had Dodge call wanting to buy one for me, and I told him, no, mine's not for sale to y'all. <laughs> yeah. I've got, I keep two of them, and I don't have no more because we don't use them. Yep. Uh, Dodge says 14 weeks before they can get any. Yep. And I said, well, put them on critical. He said, that is on critical. A lot of, a lot of these parts are, are come from vendors for these manufacturers. And, and with the COVID, the, the vendors are running minimal employees. Yeah. So what they'll do is they'll say, all right, these are on back order, but we're not going to pr- run that production line until we get 500 orders. Yeah, until we get 500. Then we'll put everybody over on that production line and let them run it. Ken over at uh, Campbell Dodge was telling Russell yesterday that uh, there's 900 on order right now, <laughs> and they told them 14 weeks before they start shipping them. Mm. So these people got these new trucks that's still under warranty. And they're sitting there. Two of them I have at the shop is under warranty. Mm-hmm. But the guy told me, he said, just fix my truck. I need my truck to work with. I don't care if I have to pay for it or not. I need my truck. That's what he told me. So Russell said, I have one left. So he was going to put it on there today and program it. And, you know, but, mm-hmm. and uh, I told him, I said, we're going to put the old one back in the box. And Russell said, no, you ain't, Daddy, because now they want them back for core. Because I was going to send Owen with him so he can go to Dodge and get his money back. He can get his money back from Dodge. It'll just take a little bit of legwork. So. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a short break. So we'll be back here in a few minutes. Just give us a call. Thank you. And good morning. We're back on the radio this morning. So we got some more questions here, Joe, if you want to pick one and we'll talk about it. Well, let's go to Jeremiah's 0340 150. It's got a six-cylinder with a 4.2 liter in it. <coughs> Said he had to park his truck for a few min- months while... <coughs> 
He took care of some personal business. The truck ran fine when he parked it. While he was away, someone stole the starter and my solenoid from the firewall off the truck, replaced both, and the truck started fine. Then my nephew somehow broke the post off the solenoid, so I had to replace that, and now the truck won't start or crank. I've checked and tested all the relays, fuses, the lights, just in case of draining. I've changed the battery, charged the battery all night, and... It took a good charge upon testing. The battery is holding 13.2. Please help. What's causing the problem? Well, when he took the solenoid off, the battery cables were on one side, but there's a, there is a feed wire for ignition feed wire yeah. on that solenoid, too. It's either when they broke that post off, they either shorted it, and that that wire's got a fuse link in it, right, Doug? Yes, it does have. Yeah, so. And, and he could have dropped one of the starter wires off, and it's laying down there in it. You just need to do a little bit of looking and a little bit of exploring or put it on a wreck and bring it to one of us. Yeah, because he's got an issue either with the fuse link wire or the way he's got it wired up. And one, it's one of the two. If it started fine after he put the solenoid on it and the starter and then he replaced the solenoid, I, he's got some wires crossed up. That's what I'm thinking, too. Yeah, he's got some more. And if he put a four-prong solenoid on mm-hmm. it, and his only had a three-prong, and he's got it plugged on the wrong prong. They won't crank. Because one of them is stays 12 volts all the time, and the other one is is excited mm-hmm. water to excite the starter. So, Jeremy, call one of us, and we'll see if we can get you some help and get you lined out and get it where you can go riding again. So we got a got one more, Joe. we got enough time for another one. Sure. Should have. Yep. Just pick one, and we'll go from there. Well, we're going to talk to Melody about her 2002 Chrysler Neon with a 2.0 liter. She's got a gear shift positions are not right. One day, suddenly, my car's gears shifted to abnormal positions. Instead of first and second gears, it switches to third, fourth, and fifth. Is now in third and reverse and is in fourth gear. I don't have first two gears anymore. What might cause this and how to fix it? The stick won't budge into the right side where fifth and reverse gears are positioned before. Um, so one of this is standard. Yes, it is. Got to be, yeah. yeah. And and you know those those cars, the, the shifter inside's got cables on that goes out there to the yes. linkage, and there's a ball crank out there on that when you shift it from left to right. And so, that's a little plastic bushing that holds it all together. Yes, and I think that's her issue. That bushing is busted out there on that yep. ball crank going to the transmission. And that's a 2002. Yep. Most likely it's done got hard and fell all apart. It's and, wore out. So, Melanie, if you will call one of us and we'll get it and we'll get you took care of, probably it's going to be a fairly cheap fix to fit, repair it, you know. Yeah. Unless you get there and it's something inside the transmission, but it's probably going to be the the ball socket that's got a little rubber cup that snaps down over it. Just uh, bring it to one of us, call one of the certified service centers, and we'll get you took care of. We'll we'll make sure you took good care of. Yeah, most of the time, if one if it's stuck in one gear and on that little ball crank and that lever's forward, you're not going to move it over until yeah. it pulls it out of that gear. Yeah, it's so. got to pull it back into neutral. And, and, and you can drop and it over. Then the lever will move over. So he, she, she's got an issue with that out there. So, yeah, and it, and it you know, it's most likely not going to be a whole lot of problem to repair. You know, it's it's a pretty simple fix. If you know, because how many of them have you ever seen that the little plastic ball socket falls out? They use that same thing on a Dodge uh, wiper motor too. Yeah, they do exactly. And I've seen them come in one side work and one side won't. Yeah, let's go to this uh, Chris with this 04 F-250 Super Duty XLT four-wheel drive crew cab. 
Chris says, uh, I've replaced the shift lever, the alternator, and two batteries in last week. Fuses are good under the dash. The batteries are good, and the alternator tested properly, but nothing is charging. I've read a lot about the eye circuit on the back of the cluster. I've tried beating the dash with no response. A lot of people say the cluster is bad, and I say, some say the fuse box under the dash. Any help would be appreciated. All the fuses have power to them. Not sure how to check power to the cluster panel. Well, I, I'm going to tell you that I don't think it's in the clusters the issue. Nope. It's the little bitty one wire on the back of that alternator that causes it. And it tells it when to charge. tells it when to charge. And we've had some trouble with the connectors on them, hadn't we? Sure have. And, and I think that maybe the wire, it, it might, a lot of times they'll break right inside the the, the, the right, insulation. Right where they crimp the insulation deal down. And you'll look at it and you'll think, well, that's connected. But if you pull on it, it'll be stretchy. Yeah. And I think that wire is probably the issue or the connector where it plugs in. And I can almost remember that plug number. Because bumper to bumper has them, but I can't. Yeah. I can almost remember it, but I can't. Brain won't pull it back up right at the moment. I got you. But. Uh, and another thing, too, that is controlled out of the PCM. Yes, he needs to have a scanner on us so he can see if he's getting a request. Yeah, if you're getting a request, then you, you got wiring problems. Yeah. And I, I have a lot of times catch people coming through traveling, you know, trying to get home, mm-hmm. run a wire from the battery over to the alternator, click mm-hmm. it on to it because it's got PCM problems, mm-hmm. and send them on home, tell them when you stop at night, unplug it, next yep. morning plug it back up, uh, just put a plug on it, and... You know, that ain't the proper way to fix it, but I got them on home because I got letters back from them stating they got home without any problems and phone calls. So, you know, just do a little bit more checking, pull on your wire right there. Uh, or if you run into a problem, call call Russell at the shop and he'll get you took care of. Yeah, we can do that. You know, uh, sometimes working on these things yourself is not the best thing in the world. Like uh, like uh, Ken Kenneth over at uh, Sullivan says, uh, DIY does not stand for do it yourself. It stands for destroy it yourself. Yeah. So, again, be careful. He's probably spent a lot of money on this, putting parts on it that he didn't need to, Doug. Yeah, he's probably done put an alternator on it, and sure, you know, and, and it's probably something simple as a plug, like you said, because they had a lot of trouble with the plugs on them things. Yeah, and he might have created this problem where that problem might already been there. Sometimes you don't really know. Yeah, and, and a lot of times, you know, people stick an alternator on it instead of having it tested. Yeah. Carry it somewhere and have it tested. You know, all the bumper bumpers can test it and tell you, you know, and it takes them about two minutes to test it. And, you, you know, then you know, okay, I put an alternator on it, that ain't going to fix my problem. Well, he's he's put an alternator on there, a shift lever, and two batteries. So he's he's properly probably wasted some money in, in the course of making this, trying to make this repair. Probably a grand. So, yeah, somewhere in that range. You know, but give us a call. We'll get you took care of. Call me or Joe or, or any of us, and we'll get you lined out and get you took care of. Won't be no problem. Uh, but like I say, Joe, it's probably going to be the plug on the back of the alternator. The, I think it's a white wire, isn't it, on the back of the alternator? I'm almost sure it's a white with a black stripe. Yes, that, I think so. Plug. I'm I think almost it is sure white, it's white or black or brown, yeah. It's white with a, with a black stripe, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Best I can remember. But uh, there again... You know, it is what it is. But if you'll give us a holler, we'll get you took care of. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back here in a few minutes. Good morning. We're back here at the radio station this morning. Here, This is Joe and Duck from the Car and Duck uh, uh, Truck Doctor Show. We come here every Wednesday morning with Dave. Uh, if you got questions, send them in to Heidi. She will get them printed off to us. And uh, 
right at the moment they're experiencing a little bit of uh, problems. Uh, so if you have any questions, just send them in to her. And if we don't get them answered today, we'll get them answered next week when we're we'll back up here. Dave's off today under the weather a little bit, but he'll be back here in a few days and kicking high like he always is. And Heidi's <laughs> sitting over here smiling at us. <laughs> so, Joe, go ahead and read this question. Uh, Damien has got a 05 Dodge Dakota with a 4.7 liter. I like to talk about these because this is a common issue with these engines, Doug. Common issue. My Dakota is overheating. That's what he says. All usual suspects have been checked. New thermostat, new pump, new radiator, cap fan clutch works, no lease, gaskets and block are fine, radiator and block have been flushed, water is flowing fine, heater blows hot air, I still overheat. But if you turn on the heater, it goes back to normal temp and is fine as long as the heater is on. Any ideas? <laughs> well, we got a couple. And and the first one comes to mind when he says that if he turns on the heater, this is providing that there are no hydrocarbon gases in the coolant system from a slightly bloated head gasket or a cracked cylinder head. I would be looking directly at the radiator being partially stopped up. How about the you? bottom half stopped up? You look in the top half, it looks clean, right, Doug? It looks real clean. But gravity says all the gunk is going to end up where? At the bottom. And a lot of times we pull these radiators out and they look really good up top. But if you pick it up and compare it to the weight of the new one, it'll be four or five pounds, pounds heavier. Heavier. And I took it up and stuck the camera in it, you know, and you mm-hmm. look at the bottom of it and all the flues are stopped up. Yeah. The, the, little, the little tubes that go across that flow, they'll be restricted because they're full of gunk. So what when he turns the heater on and says that it runs cool... The heat, the heater core becomes another small radiator, radiator. to help displace the heat yes. to cool the water off to keep the engine cool. So, speaking of that, speaking of one running hot, I had a customer from Pine Bluff call me. He's got a 08 66 Duramax, sent a one ton Chevrolet truck. Yeah. They put a water pump on it, they put a radiator on it, they put thermostats in it, checked and done, done all this. And then he calls and he says, I still can't. I'm still having trouble with it running hot. I said, "Does it run hot on the road, or does it run hot in town?" No, it runs hot all the time. He said, "I can drive it three or four miles and I'm hot." And I said, "You realize that 08, 06, 07, 08, 09, they had a lot of head gasket trouble out of them mm-hmm. because the way the head gasket is designed." He said, "Well, I check. You know, put the chemical in the little balls, pulled it up in, there, and I said, a lot of times on that six six, you will not get no chemical change." He said, "Well." It works on the gas price. I understand that, but yeah, something diesels. about that diesel yeah. is a little bit different. Now, I have, and I told him, I said, look in your, you know, it's got a plastic reservoir tank. I said, do you see the black funk in the bottom? He said, yeah, it's full. It's got a blowed head gasket. Mm-hmm. I said, that's, that's one. soot. Yeah. Yeah, that's soot getting in there. And I said, that's one thing that we know on a 6.6 that you can't check it with a hydrocarbon tester. You look in there, and if it's got the black soot in it, you can pull it. And so, he said, good, I'm sending it to you. A lot of times on those deck, you can start them cold, make sure the coolant level's right. You can start them cold and let them run for about, I don't know, a minute, shut it off, take that cap off, see how much pressure's in yeah. there. And it'll, if it goes, you know that it's too it's, high. It's getting, it's, getting the, it's getting the gases in there, building up pressure. And them things blow on the left front corner on the left side and the right rear corner because that's the thinnest part of the head gaskets right but between the compression and the water pool yes and there's it's not but about oh 
quarter inch. Quarter inch, maybe not. Mm-hmm. May not be that much, but that's where they had trouble out. And the new head gasket, when you replace it, you know, those places you can get them is from Chevrolet. Uh, they come out and they they double stacked it right there, so that made it a whole lot thicker, and it seemed to hold up better. But yeah. you know, it ought to be a recall on it. But General Motors ain't going to recall it yeah. because they ain't had enough people to gripe about it. So, but uh, that's one of the problems that you you know. On a diesel, everybody thinks that you can hydrocarbon. And a lot of times you can. A lot of times you can still pick it up. But on a 6.6 Duramax, for some reason, they don't show it near as much as the Ford 6.4 or the 6.0 or any of them like that. But, yeah, you can do the same thing with the old, you know, the uh, Cadillacs with yeah. the North Star in them. Yep. They don't pick up a lot of hydrocarbons either. But you can, you can, and know if they're lightly blown on those, because they'll pull the head, the head bolts loose on them. <laughs> but you'll, you'll find, you'll find that problem that the guy says, I can drive it around town for a week and I won't have any problem. I get on the freeway, it overheats halfway to Memphis. Yep, I got a problem. Yeah, because it, what it is, it's, it's, it, those gases get up in there and it stops it from flowing water like it's supposed to. And it'll actually push a little coolant out the overflow in small increments till the coolant level gets low. It's low, and then you start and having overheating problems. That's it. That's kind of like uh, I had a customer come in, had a uh, a 604 come in and say, hey, my heater quit working. It's back in the winter. Mm-hmm. He was telling Russell, Russell said, well, probably got a blowed head gasket or it could be a GR cooler blowed. He said, well, I am putting a little water in it. Come mm-hmm. find out, a GR cooler blowed. Yeah. And what it's doing is filling the coolant system full of air. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the highest part on there? The heater core. If in moderately low coolant level, the first thing it'll quit working is the is heater. heater. Yeah, because it quits putting water up point, there. Yeah. You know, and that's what I tell people. You know, if if something quits working, you've got a problem. We need to be looking at it. Yep. There's something, you know, and you have cause and effect a lot of times. You know, if a heater core from age stops up is one thing but if it if it quits blowing warm air because of a circulation issue because it's low on coolant and you need to look someplace else you, you might see the, the 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 effects of the problem might be the heater not blowing warm yeah but the cause is something else something else has caused it not to blow warm that's correct you know it's kind of like you know these dodge trucks you know the 10s 11s and 12s and the 13s they don't have no cabin air filter in it mm-hmm. so construction people you know they all got them well they get on the right hand side with their muddy feet mm-hmm. knock the mud off in the floorboard well as soon as it dries they get back in there with their feet moving their feet around the suction is right at their feet and yeah, recirculate doors right there yeah. pulls all that dirt right up in there russell pulled one out of uh city of benton's they got two or three of them dodges he pulled one out because the guy said hey i can't get no air out of the vents you ought to seen it it was a half inch thick of dirt <laughs> On on evaporator core. Well, that's the thing about an evaporator core. If there's if there's <laughs> dust in the air and it sucks it in, that evaporator core is ice cold and, and it's, it's wet, wet, and that that dusty dirt's going to stick to it and it becomes mud. And the more it collects, the better it collects it. Can I got bit, Joe? You know, we always go in there. We put evaporator core and a heater core in. Yep. Went in there and put a heater core in, put evaporator core in it, put it all back together. Yeah. Filled it back full of water sitting there running all at once her son go ploop antifreeze runs out on the floor mm. you know where the tube is is twisted in the end of it yeah blew popped it out off. really popped off defective and, part and you know how bad a dodge is oh put. man that's yeah, made our job to do that <laughs> you know i called bumper to bumper and talked to to dickie about it and he said no problem we'll take care of that yeah 
but it got in there and they when they switched it it didn't quite get yeah. switched enough and it run about 10 or 12 minutes before it blowed off Russ, uh tim come over and he said russell need to come over it's, this tank is pouring green antifreeze out on the floor wow but you know he never even picked his tools up he was picking his tools up while it was running you know getting mm-hmm. everything put back up and he just went back to pulling it back out and called dickie and he sent me another one down there but that's one time out of a million probably that's going to do that well all parts are manufactured by different vendors exactly and and if you go buy a new vehicle it's got a warranty on it and that's the reason why exactly in case there's a, 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 a issue with any of those parts and it's got a defect the manufacturer wants to fix it make the customer happy and we do the same thing bumper to bumper takes care of us we take care of the customer and so it's uh it's good it's a good uh good relationship we have with the bumper to bumper folks it's a good relationship and and like i say joe they take good care of us i mean yes they do if we need something as you know and i know and the rest of us know we call jerry rocher jerry rocher he'll get it took care of it may take him a little bit but he'll figure out some way to get it took care of so we can make our customer happy and i'm gonna make my customer happy regardless you know it, sure it's not his fault it's really not my fault or your fault but you know we're gonna make the customer happy so you know, just the way we're going to do it, then you know, people bumper to bumper are fine people. All the way from Crow to Fletcher to Jerry Rota to James to, you know, to yep. every one of them. They're all just good folks. Yeah, they take care of us. We're proud to be partnered with them. Yes, very proud to be partnered with them. You know, and so read us another one, Joe. Go with one period right above that. Eric got a uh, 01 Honda. Honda. Okay, let's do Eric. He's got a 01 Honda Accord EX four-cylinder 2.3 liter. He said, both my headlights went out. All other lights work, front and back. Check fuse, bulbs, relays, all good. Neither high nor low beams work, and when put high beams on, high beam indicator doesn't light up on dash. Either no power at the lights, tested fuse, looks like no power there either. I tested both sockets and both left and right headlight fuses, no power on either. Light relays, one and two power. May or may not be related. A few days before the headlights went out, check engine light came on. Codes P1298 electric load detector circuit high input and PO141 oxygen sensor heater circuit bank one, two came out. The heater motor started working. The heater motor started making a lot of noise. Then the heater totally stopped working the next day. What's the issue? Well, there's one code in there that we don't like. Yes. It's the high input. It's like possibly the alternator is overcharging. And electrical components that are made to work on 12 volts don't like 15, 16, 17 volts. 18 volts, 19 volts. No. They can they can spike it up at high. Yes. And your your headlight circuit, he's probably got a, if he's tested all of that, it's probably going to be one of the main fuse links out there is blowed. That's what I think. And it's and it's because he's probably got a bad alternator, and it's yes, it's it's spiked the volts up so high that, and when it when it throwed up that that uh, twelve ninety eight code, it's telling him, hey, we're cutting stuff off. Yep. So you know the fan motor probably run wide open and probably burn it up. Possible. But uh, and the oxygen sensor, is, you know, it's you know it's the heater part. Yeah, there's these O2 sensors are heated O2s, which means they have little heater heater elements in them that when you start that engine up, that it heats that heater element up to try and warm the O2 up so the O2 will start functioning sooner so it can start 
working better. Working the rich, lean, rich, lean, switching back and forth sooner because they need to be warm to do that. So they put heater elements in them, and the high voltage will burn the heater elements out in there, too. And how many times have you seen high voltage burn the headlights out? Oh, absolutely. And the taillight bulbs, and dash it might, bulbs. It might have been the switch. It might have burnt the switch up on it. Very possible. Yeah. But you just, it's something that has to be tested, something we've got to put a computer on, we've got to look at it, we've got to make sure what's going on, and then you start, you fix the problem that started it all, then you start fixing other problems. You fix the created. effects of it. Yes, that it, it created in there, and it could be fairly expensive, just depending on, it could, it could have fried the computer on it. Possible. It could have got the body control module. It's a 01 model. Mm-hmm. So, and like you say, it could have fried the headlight switch. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back here in a few minutes. And we're back here this morning at the studio with me and Joe. If you got any questions, just send them to Heidi, and she'll take care of you. The, Joe, pick us out another question here, and we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about this uh, Mary's, the 99 Ford F-150 with the 4.6 liter. Mm-hmm. The windows and the wipers are not working. And Mary has diagnosed this herself. She just yeah. doesn't know it. Yeah, she, she's got the problem figured out. Her aunt-in-law had the radio professionally installed. My husband took it out, and now the wipers and windows do not work. Checked all fuses and relays, and all are fine. Any ideas? We got a whole bunch of ideas. They have left something unplugged, or they have cut a wire that they did not need to cut. Or left the ground wire off, or something something that they have disconnected that they didn't put back on. And there again, Joe, we're back to this finding it. problem. Yeah, it's back to a man-made problem. And then finding that man-made problem may take a couple, three hours. Correct. Take five, five, four, five minutes to fix it. Going to pull the radio back out, and we're going to be looking in there to see what wires they cut and yep. what those wires go to. And when you when you say, well, you can look at that wire and see where it goes, no. We're going to go look it up on our database and get a copy of the wiring schematic and see what color that wire is and what it goes to. And where it goes. And that's correct. So it's it's really difficult to, to sometimes, and it can, it can be time-consuming to uh, go behind somebody and see what kind of man-made problem we have because you never know what went through their mind and why they did that. So, And they could have just unplugged it, not even thinking about it, and never got it plugged back all the way back up together. That's correct. Because, you know, all these plugs nowadays have to click. When you put them together, they click. And if they don't make that click noise, they can just shake, you know, pull back apart real easy. You know, well, you, you know, th- this is a little older when it's a 99, but some of the late models, you can you can put in a radio – aftermarket and if you don't get things hooked back up right you're going to have a lot of trouble because all of the late models go through uh totally integrated power modules and things like that yeah and if it doesn't see certain things online it don't work they won't work right they you know and it's it's kind of like dave always says it goes down this round circle in a fight of a vehicle mm-hmm. and i'm talking one minute you're talking the next dave's talking the next and then we all talk together and then it pulls what it wants from me and you and, and Dave, and that's how it tells the vehicle, hey, this is what we're doing, and this is how we're going to do it. And that's how you, how your vehicle operates down the road. It's not like it was 25 years ago when basically it, you turned the key on, it started, and it didn't have none of this. But nowadays, they all have to talk one another. And if just like this, if he left a ground wire unhooked or a plug unplugged, nothing's going to work. Even though this is an older model vehicle, but still yet, it does have some computer stuff in it. Oh, absolutely. 
and if it if it can't see it it's not going to work right but you know if you take your vehicle in and you modify it it's not a good thing uh you know they said they had it done by a professional i i don't know if they sent it to like uh you know, audio shop or something like that. If they did, they need to take it back there and say, "Hey, look, guys, since you put this radio in, I ain't got no wipers." Yeah, and uh, and my windows don't work. Yeah, so that you know, and they were working before, so it's cause and effect. So that's the only thing that's been done. They have done something to cause something that. There's a ninety percent chance that that's what's yes. going on. You know, and and there again, it's time consuming to find it. Yeah, you know, but it's, give them an opportunity to make it right. Exactly, what I would do. Call them, say, "Hey, look." It was doing fine, and now it's not. And they'll take care of it. Yeah, most likely. If they don't, you've given them the best effort to do the right thing. If they won't do the right thing, then then take it someplace else. Bring it into one of us. Let us see what's going on. And if it's related to that, we'll we'll fix the vehicle. But, you know, you could take the invoice back to where you had it fixed. Say, look, this is what happened. You guys yeah. did this. And yeah. then, then see if they reimburse. You know, that's the proper way to do it. Don't get all mad and upset and throw rocks and stuff. You know, that's right. Good, you know. Well, you get all mad, then you the, whoever been working on it, and you did make him mad. Then you come to you and you and you say, okay, they failed to hook the ground wire back up, and this was your problem. Mm-hmm. But if you just say, okay, hey, fine, and you go back over the invoice and we write it up as this is what we find. Mm-hmm. We went in there and checked it, found the ground wire loose, blah blah blah. We fixed it, and most of the time they'll reimburse you without any trouble. Sure. You know, they may not pay the whole thing, but they'll pay you quite a bit of it. You know, I've done it myself, you know, just, uh, you know. Everybody makes mistakes. Yeah, we all make mistakes. And as I always say, Joe, if human hand touches it, it's subject to messing up at any minute. If it's man-made, it's going to break at any time without notice. Yes. And so we got about three minutes, Joe, left before we're okay. going to get off the air. So if you want to pick us another one, short one, we'll do it and move on. Well, let's look back here. Mitsubishi Montero. It's got a front suspension problem. It's an O2 model, six-cylinder. Uh, it said the front tires are bowing in more than usual at the top. The tread wear hasn't become an issue yet because they are new tires three months ago, but I've had I've been feeling a strange, like, clicking feeling in the steering wheel when the <clears throat> front end of the car goes up and down from accelerating braking. It's, is there something with the front suspension? Please help. Well... Duck, we all know that if, if it's making noises, there's something wore out up there. Something is, needs to be worked on. And if he can visually look and see the tires are not at the right angle, yes. He needs to get into somebody that does suspension repair work and the loose parts, see what parts are loose and wore out. It's an O2 model. It's 18 years old. They don't have any grease fitting, so I'm sure he's got some ball joints, control arms, or sway bar, bar links or sure. something this wore out on it and it's going to have to be replaced and then do an alignment on it and it'll correct probably the noise as well as the uh tire wear and he said he's the the tires are fairly new so they won't be new long no and about the time you notice they're wore on one side they'll be wore too far down to be to do anything with them that's correct you know then then you got to fix all the front end and then you got to replace the tires again so yeah. you need to get it on into someone and let one of us take care of you we can look at you you know, it don't say where they located it is, but if you're close to one of us, just call us and we'll set up an appointment. We'll get you in there and get you all took care of. Yep. Uh, but it will eat the tars up pretty quick if you don't get something done to it. That's a fact, you know. And and most most front end problems are 
you'll notice the way it drives sometimes. And we have customers come in sometimes, Duck, and they'll have ball joints and stuff, and they've been chasing this thing down the road and the little dips in the road and the cracks in the road. And yeah. you'll repair it, and you'll put ball joints and struts and shocks and whatever it needs to make the front end right and do an alignment on it. They'll 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 drive it and they'll call you the next time they come in for oil change. Say you know I I didn't think that car would drive that good it's when you got the guys got through with it because it's not something that happens like a light switch. Yeah, these parts wear out gradually and you get used to the way that car drives. But and then when you repair it, it puts it back to the way it was driving when it was new, and you think, wow, I never knew how yeah. bad that car was really driving until you fixed it. But it went you know over a sixty or seventy or eighty thousand mile period. To get there. To get there, and then when you go back and put all the new pieces and get the front end line back up. That's a light switch turning it yeah. back on, putting yeah. it right back right. Putting it right back in the right spot. But wearing it out, it took 70,000, 80,000 miles to wear exactly, it out. Exactly, you so. know, to get it there. And and people, and that's like I have customers come in, drop something off, and my guy will go drive it and come back, and he say, hey, this thing needs some front end problem. And I call the guy and tell him, hey, you need a little front end work. Well, I hadn't noticed it, but there again. He drives it every day, Gradually. and he's slowly. Then when you stick someone else in it driving it, it, it my guy come back and told me one day, he says, like pushing a wet noodle down a highway yeah. all over. Yep. Joe, thanks for coming in. Duck, thank Dave, you. hope you get better. Yep, you're well, buddy. And we'll talk to you next Wednesday.